0: Hi, this is Tony Ruggiero. Thanks for listening to The Tour Coach. These are the players, coaches, experts, stories, and insights from my work on the PGA Tour at my retreats or my downtown teaching center in Mobile, Alabama. My goal is to shed light and share insights from the people who I've gotten to know and meet working on the PGA Tour and teaching through my career. And I hope this helps all of us play, coach, and teach better golf. If you like what you hear, please give us a good review, and take a look at our new Dew Sweepers YouTube channel, or the Dew Sweeper on Instagram, where I've taken some time to share videos of help from my teachings, travels, and journeys. So here we are on another edition of the Tour Coach, and my guest this week is former president of the PGA. She's a Golf Magazine Top 100 teacher. She's played in a PGA Tour event, played golf at North Carolina, Golf Magazine Top 100 teacher. Susie, did I miss anything? (laughs) Nope, you missed anything. Long list of accomplishments. One of the first times, probably not the first time, but one time in particular, I remember listening to you talk. It was at Pinehurst at a Golf Magazine Top 100 summit. And the thing that caught me was I just remember leaving there or listening and thinking, like, compared to other people I'd heard talk, you really seem to get to me the importance of growing the game and as well as like the fact that like you know golf is in a new age i mean things are different and you get to teach golf and to grow the game we kind of have to think outside the box a little and use technology and Attract younger generations of people. And that's the first time that I listened to you talk, or one of the first times I listened to you talk, and I was like, man, Susie Whaley really gets it and knows what the hell she's doing. Anyways, well, that's very nice. Then, <laughs> it's, it's, well, and since then, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to get to know you more. We taught some together with a, a family that lives down there at Beersall, where you teach at. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. And I'd like to kind of pick your brain and talk to you a little bit about your journey. Like, how did you end up? going from playing at North Carolina to playing on the LPGA some to ending up as the president of the PGA and a golf magazine top 100 teacher.
1: My career has definitely not been linear. And uh, (laughs) I tell people all the time, you know, if you ask me sitting on my couch, like, did I imagine myself doing what I did? No, absolutely not. You know, I just took what was in front of me in the moment of time. I wasn't even going to be a golf professional coming out of the University of North Carolina. I mean, I had a good college career. I was a steady collegiate player. I certainly wasn't the best on our team. I played golf with Katie Peterson and Donna Andrews, both of whom played on tour. Donna Andrews, a major winner on the LPGA tour, a multiple-time tour winner, but proud to be a part of that team. We went to nationals. It was a great experience, but my goal was to go to law school. And I had graduated from college. I was having a really good senior spring in college and, and was living with my family for the summer. I qualified for the LPGA championship as an amateur. And went over and played really well, and had uh, a couple people offer to send me to tour school. And you know, you can you can only imagine that conversation when I got home with my family. <laughs> you know, what? I'm not going well, go to go <laughs> <laughs> When I had never ever even discussed ever being a golf professional, and I think about that today and. I'm so grateful and thankful for the family that I have because they said, you can always go to law school. If this is something you want to try, you should go try it. And and that's what I did. And I have this amazing career, amazing husband, family because of that decision. And um, But as I said, you know, it was all over the place. I, As you mentioned, I was a, a tour player for a couple of years, pretty unsuccessful at that, but loved it. Went on to have my children and, and got back into the business as a coach and a teacher, thankful to Bob Toskey and Jim Flick, who were running golf schools at the time where my husband was working was trained and mentored by, by Martin Hall and Mike Malaska and Dean Rymeth and Laird Small and um, the Woods, kept Mark and Kathy and Charlie Epps. I just had this unbelievable group of people that mentored me, not only in coaching, but, but within the game as a teacher. And then went on to be head golf professional and then went on to be a commentator. So, you know, for me, the journey was all over the place, but one that, I,
0: that I've loved. One of the things I enjoy about doing this podcast is I love hearing how teachers end up where they are, you know, and how the the road got them there and the influences they have. We have some very similar influences. Mark Wood was my first golf instructor. Um, is that right? Yes, and I didn't know he was as young as he was when my dad paid for those lessons. He always <laughs> just – like I told him this the other night, he teaches a lot of my junior stuff with me, which you and I talked. We're going to do some stuff together in the fall. I mean, Woody just always talked like he knew everything from the very beginning. Like I just always assumed he was older. But, uh, yeah, so Woody was my first golf instructor, and he was the whole reason I decided when I first started working with him and I first went to spend some time with him and Kathy, he was the reason I I watched him with people, and I said that's what I want to do for my career.
1: Oh, that's amazing.
0: Yeah, but it's interesting how many, you know, golfs, I think as big as it is, it's still very small and how much of us are all interrelated and intertwined and we have uh, you know a lot of similar similar contacts and influences on us. So talk a little bit about learning from Mike Martin Hall and Jim Flick and Bob Toski And because I, I think that as much as golf has grown and technology's taken hold of our business, I think there's still so much to learn from those great instructors that were the you know foundations of our industry. And I think sometimes with all the stuff out there, people overlook how great they were.
1: Yeah, no doubt about it. You know, and as I said, I was just i so fortunate. I kind of dropped in the lap, right, where <laughs> I had these unbelievable opportunities. But what I look back at now and what I was taught then, which I'm not sure I realized in the moment, but it was always about the person in front of them first and foremost. It was like they were the only person there in the moment that they were being coached. They, I mean, they were the true coaches, in my opinion, of the game. They demanded a lot, especially from those that worked for them. They wanted mm-hmm. you to learn swing theory. They wanted you to understand it. They wanted you to sit around at lunch and question and really challenge. And that's what I remember a lot of It's just I wish I'd had a tape recorder then. Now I'm aging myself even talking about a tape recorder. But, you know, if you could have just taped those lunches where, you know, Martin and, and Charlie Epps and Bob were were talking about swing theory and, and the greats from Bob Tosky's time and, Jim Flip talking about coaching Nicholas and it was just moments in time that you realize very quickly that they already knew without a track man that it was about impact. (laughs) They already knew it was about training to the person's biomechanics. Now they didn't use those words. Mike Malaska certainly did, but they didn't use those words in their coaching, but it was very clear and evident that they had been students of the game. They were passionate and purposeful in their coaching, no matter who was in front of them, and that they wanted that person to meet their goals, meaning the students' goals, first and foremost. And for me, I've never lost that. I've carried that throughout, which has really helped me in my coaching develop partnerships with those that I teach.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I look back on, you know, coming up and teaching alongside and working with folks like Mark Wood and Hank Johnson, who I worked for for such a long time, and, you know, that was out of that Golf Digest school era with Jim Flick and Bob Toski and all those, and and they were very demanding to work for, you know. Very demanding. Um, and, and I think, like, now that I have folks work under me, I tell them sometimes, like, they have they think I can be a jerk sometimes. Like they got no, clue. they got no <laughs> yeah. clue what it's written. <laughs> I mean, well, you know, I'll tell you a um, story.
1: So I was, uh, I was, I was in the beginning. You know, first of all, you work for a year without being paid, and uh, you're just there observing and, and grateful for the opportunity, which I was. And you think about that today, and you think about young coaches today. Would they be willing to? To, to get that no. kind of time, you know, and so right then it was just a privilege to be the one that was invited to not get paid, and I laugh about that now. And then, you know, when you started, you started on the putting green. You were not, you were not given the opportunity to take somebody's golf swings into your hands until you had, you know, observed and watched and, and earned that privilege. And I remember the first time I got called in to long game. And Jim Flick used to call me Whaley. He didn't ever call me by my first name. He just called me Whaley. And he's like, Whaley, come on, let's go. And I, I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm in. I was like getting put off the bench, right? And uh, I was ready to go. I mean, I had studied so hard. I thought I'd had it. And, and the one thing that anybody worked for Jim Flick knew you weren't allowed to say was turn. And uh, right out of the gate, I said turn. And he looked up at me and he said, you can go have a seat. And that was it. I got one line out. I had to sit down for another six months. <laughs> but you tell you learned what. I learned very quickly. I never said that word again. And, uh, but, you know, for me, it was it was something that you wanted their respect. You wanted mm-hmm. to earn the right to be able to honestly have the privilege to change somebody's life through the game. And I think there's times you and I probably have experienced it, you know, that I try to share with young coaches this isn't just about a half an hour or an hour and, and getting paid for it. And I realize that's important. And I'm not saying it's not because that's our living and we should be respected for that. But it's so much more than that. And when you have the opportunity to, to really change somebody's day, life in that hour, you have to look at it as a responsibility. And that's that's what they taught me. It was It's an enormous responsibility and one that, that I think, you know, those of us that do this full time take very seriously.
0: This probably isn't totally an accurate observation because I'm jaded, but, like, you know, I feel like, and this isn't being critical of new younger instructors coming up because it's a different time, but, like, I feel like, you know, there were more people, maybe it's just a generational deal like you, like, I was the same, like, I can't tell you the number of days that I would go and I would just tee golf balls up for Hank and, and Wayne <laughs> Flint and, and like I mean never got paid. And I never it never crossed my mind that I should have got paid.
1: No. Right. right. Like,
0: it was like my opportunity to learn. And I think that I'm I, I'm certain that like I'm halfway decent as a teacher now because of that experience. And I you know, I don't know that our culture certainly has changed because I don't see there's very few people that are willing to do that now. Part of me wishes, like, there were more people that were just still old school enough that were, like, willing to do that more. I mean, maybe that just makes me old as dirt, but that's certainly the way I wish it was.
1: <laughs> I think it does make us sound a little old, but I could tell you I was Martin's minion in the bunker, right? So I was the one doing all the raking and as the, as the sand into my hair and my eyelids and my eyelashes and Martin's you know, barking orders from the top of the bunker to those that are in it. And it was 108 degrees, right, in Florida. But, you know, I think a couple of factors weigh into the fact why it's probably a little out of the question now to, to ask that of younger coaches. You know, we don't have a lot of golf schools anymore. They certainly are on the rise and coming back, which is nice to see. You have mm-hmm. teachers like Jim McLean who are still training just as, as hard and challenging to yes. those that work for him, which I love to see. But, you know, not everybody's going to take that opportunity on, and, and those that have have been incredibly successful in the business. You know, so my recommendation to young coaches is, you know, find somebody. Find somebody that's willing to share their knowledge with you, because I've never had a PGA professional or a teacher that's acclaimed that hasn't been willing to share, and, you know, if you seek them out, they would, they would love to help, and I think that young coaches, they have young families, and they're trying to make ends meet, so I understand not being able to, to do what we did. However, I do think there's so much opportunity now with technology to study, to really learn the science of the game, to research, to learn the biomechanics of the golf swing, to understand pressures and mass and force to the point that I was le- didn't know I was learning that from those that were coaching me through it, but I was learning that. And I think in today's environment, you have to be a self-study in many situations. And Try not to use your students as your study objects. Right? Yeah, um, right. You know, I think no, all of us would have given that. back. I think we would have given back our first two years' salary because those poor people that I coached were only getting the drills that that I th- I, I was using for myself, yeah. which had nothing to do with what they needed. And I think in today's, I think what's so cool about today is there's so much information readily available if you accurately seek out the correct information that you can really understand the golf swing for those in front of you. Now the delivery is something that I think everybody can continue to work on because as coaches, you know, we're just in the human behavior business. We're just trying to change behavior. And that takes that human to do. A machine is never going to be able to do that in my opinion, right? Which makes our careers have a lot of longevity. When you look at, you know, work and and what work is going to look like over the course of the next 50 years, I don't see us going away I see us always being additive as part of the coaching industry. However, you better be working at it, and you better be working at those human skills. If I had to do it again, I would tell you that I would have taken a whole lot more behavioral, behavioral science classes in college or, or even, even after that I'm now seeking out. Um, just to understand the psychology and how really to make a difference in, in people's world beyond technology, when you add those two things together, that's when your coaching elevates
0: I think most of us all have access to about the same information. now. I mean, I don't know that, you know, I mean, I know there's people they fight on the social media about different parts of teaching and stuff, but like, I think we all have access to most of the same stuff. And I think now a lot of the differences in the people that excel with players and in developing players are just better at the art of coaching and teaching and understanding our personal skills and how to communicate and uh, you know all of those things, and you know I think and, and I agree with you. I think I think part of our role is we're heck. I mean, I'm a shrink part of the time, you know. So it's it's interesting the different hats that we wear when you coach and develop players and help people grow as, as golfers.
1: Yeah, and I don't. People would probably argue this point with me, but I've found over the course of the last five years with the advent of technology to consumer as well as to coaches, because there's obviously so many early adopters that had technology way before five years ago. But if you look at what's occurred in the last five years, I think I find the biggest impact is amongst the juniors, the strong juniors. They are Mm -hmm. very attuned to technology. They understand it. They like it. They are into stats and data. And what I found is that's made it my job even more difficult to what you just said which is playing part psychologist because their level of expectation based on data and based on what they assume they should be able to accomplish is so incredibly high in comparison to their skill set in the moment that they're in especially as they're growing and what I try to share with parents is, is it's a very difficult line to meet at home when you have a young boy or girl who understands what they're trying to accomplish? Um, who thinks that the PGA Tour and the LPGA Tour are accomplishing at X when they really aren't? And then they're deciding that a five, you know, five-yard dispersion is is not good. That's when, as a coach, you, you've got to step in and sometimes have to take that technology away for a little while, like Colin Morikawa. Let them let them understand their carry yardages and their total yardages. Mm-hmm but understand that a straight golf shot's not a bad golf shot, that a, yep. a miss hit that's two, you know, two lines low on the face is going to still be in play and you can still score because I, I find that that's, that's the age group that I think it's getting more difficult for them to accept their errors than it ever has been. And, and I'm sure there's people that will argue that with me. I'm sure we were at, in a young as youngsters, we thought we were invincible too, but I'm telling you that the data is making it, I think as a coach, you have to be that intermediary between when you're going to use the data, how you're going to train on the data, because I think it's mandatory you do, but knowing when to take it away and when to use it, I think is critical.
0: When we grew up, I don't think we had as much access or knew as much data about what tour players do. I mean, you know, we all had good players around us, and maybe we knew a tour player or not, but, like, I don't think that we had access to what everybody on tour was what the guy who won, how many greens he hit is probably, you know, we certainly didn't have that, you know, I don't think so, or I didn't for sure.
1: No, no, I don't. I mean, gosh, no. I mean, I just remember growing up and, you know, role models for me were Nancy Lopez and Joanne Carner. And, you know, I would watch them with great admiration, but I never considered their ball striking or how many greens they hit. <laughs> you know, I never thought about, right. Oh, you know, what were their strokes gained in putting? And what are mine like that? No. I mean, for me, it was about fun and, and how could I score like they scored? So it was really just about a number. Right. Could I shoot par and how could I get the ball in the hole the quickest to do that? That hasn't changed. The game hasn't changed. The game is the game. The, the whole point of the game is, is to move the ball around like chess and get it in the hole as fast as possible, no matter where you find it. And I think what's happening a lot of times today is that's easily forgettable when you have this expectation of X, you're not needing it. So somehow you haven't been successful that day. And I always tell, you know, the parents I work with, you know, stop praising on score, stop praising on the data, but praise on something more beneficial. For example, if they've worked all week with their golf professional on, on hitting a cutoff shot or or a knockdown shot, and they actually try it for the first time in a competitive situation, you know, that's what I'm looking to praise, you know, good for you. That was the right strategy at the right time. You gave it a go. Yeah, you pulled it, but you know what? I'm really proud of you for giving that a go today. And I think that's what's going to build these young players in my opinion only, to become more successful golfers, but also people, where their ego isn't so based on data that they can't get past it through adolescence.
0: Yeah, I think that uh, you know I watch it with teaching so many young players and young people, and that they because of and not blaming parents, but everything is so result oriented, and you know, and I, I think that kids get they get to where they think wrongly that their self worth is based on how they shoot. You know? Yes, yeah,
1: it's just for kids. I still struggle. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. But it's but it's true. But it's true. It's you know? True. I, think I I'm the same way with teaching. I mean every week last week everybody missed the cut. I thought I sucked all week. Right. Right. But like you know, but so I try really hard to and sometimes better than others to explain to parents and to the juniors, like, I mean Like, you're going to play this for a lifetime, so you're going to have times that you don't play very well. And and how you play isn't any relation of whether I like you, I care about you, I love you, or your parents, you know. And you've got to be more in love with the challenge of trying to get better and the art of of learning and all of that. And I think that, uh, I, I kind of think that has become, because of all the data, even a more important job for people like you and I.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's so many examples too that you can turn to, even in the course of the last year, right? The Lydia Coes who have really made a tremendous comeback after, you know, an acclaimed career, and then people saying, you know, she's what top 20 in the world, it wasn't good enough anymore, and now, you know, now all of a sudden she's back. You look at a, a Jordan Spieth, right? Oh, you know, he went, you know, he was gone forever, and and he's back. You look at Cameron Champ yesterday, uh, Ricky Fowler, who's coming, who's turning a corner. You know, there's just so many examples as a coach that you have to remind your students of that this game, like my career, is not linear. And while everybody would love to be on top all the time, it's just not the case. There's too many amazing players in the world. We are, you know, a global sport. The Olympics showcases that, of course, but we are certainly a global sport. And when you look at young players who are even playing, uh, you know, Division Three collegiate golf, I don't know the actual data, but what is that the top, You know three percent in the country and you look at division one then you look at tour you know that's not meant to be you know negative it's just look there's only a few people that are going to be the best of the best and that's on purpose that's why it's called sport (laughs) i not a lot of ghosts out there right Right. heck this game will develop people into unbelievable human beings and you know that's that's what attracted me to the game i love the people within the game i love the traditions of the game. I also love that the game is catching up technology-wise. Certainly, we're still behind, but I love the fact that AI is coming into into our lives, that machine learning is coming into lives for golf swings. And, you know, we're just going to continue as coaches to get better, to help our students get better, and that's exciting.
0: One of the things that I thought really – And I've never actually talked about this, but when you were president, I thought that the PGA, the initiative to grow the game, I thought y'all did a tremendous job. And obviously COVID hit, nobody could have planned that. It was fantastic if you were in golf because everybody started playing golf. But talk a little bit about the importance of growing the game and and some of the keys you think that are important for us as golf professionals when it comes to growing the game of golf and getting more people playing and to improve.
1: Yeah, you know, COVID – COVID was one of those that nobody could have predicted, as you said, and certainly due to back to golf efforts, you know, we we worked tirelessly to get people the opportunity to play outside, to be with friends and family in a socially responsible way. And our golf professionals were at the forefront of that, right? That had nothing, you know, yes, the PG of America helped in Washington to get that to happen, but the, the credit is due to those that run the golf facilities and who are continuing to work overtime because golf courses are packed. So now when we have this inclusion conversation about getting more people on golf courses, I think people are like, don't put any more people on my golf course. I can't get a tee time now. Right, true. But we all know that that's not the case. There's about 15,000 golf courses around the country, and certainly we want those holes and tee sheets filled. And we want as many people that want to play the game as possible to be able to play it. And so, you know, for me, at least, you know, I've always spoken to, you know, the game not looking like the communities we serve. And I think over time, that has to happen. We need to include every population that wants to play the game. And those that can't afford to play the game, we have to come up with a solution to access and to opportunity. And, you know, I'm proud to say that part of the PG of America Foundation is, is doing that. We're raising money to be able to do that. Obviously, other associations are doing the same. But we just have to do better, and we have to ensure that we're putting clubs in people's hands that maybe had never even considered themselves to be a part of our game. And are, I say very loosely, nobody owns golf. Golf will be around forever, and, but we can be the stewards of it, and we can certainly make a difference in it. And so, you know, for me, it was about making sure we develop leaders that didn't look like most of the leaders in golf look, not taking away from those that lead the game because yeah. they do a tremendous job. But we certainly aren't diverse enough. We need more women in the game, more minority leaders in the game. And that, why do we need that? Well, it brings a different perspective to the room. I think when people grow up in a different marketplace where they grow up with different cultures, different religions, different sexualities, different genders, it makes the room stronger. It makes you look at all perspectives and it, it can help develop facilities that cater. To anybody that walks through your door, and that's truly what we need. And I think it goes by the wayside that people, and, I, and this is a generalization, but most people think golf is a private elite sport, and you know only seventy percent of the courses around the country are daily fee, are public, not private. And and I think the perception is that it's, that it's opposite. And I'm not here to say there aren't very wealthy elite private courses in the country. There are, but you know those doors are opening as well. You look at a, a Pine Valley that just opened its membership to women. Long overdue. I'm not, you know, standing up and cheering on my, my chair because they finally did that. But that's progress. And, and progress is a good thing in our game. It's slow, but it's a good thing. And, and so I will continue throughout my career to espouse the need to welcome whomever wants to play this game to it. But doing that not naively, understanding that there are barriers to entry that we need to try to eliminate those barriers, that there's barriers to access. We need to try to eliminate that. And as coaches, we can be an enormous part of that solution, and, and that's why we really honed in on the coaching side of this, because we're the, that connection. We're that connection to somebody falling in love with golf, and that's, you know, that's our job.
0: That's awesome. I love all of that. I, I try really hard. I know it's harder in some places than others, but uh, I think it's important to anybody that really wants to learn the game and is passionate about it to give them access to good instruction and find ways to make it affordable or or give just give them access to it. Because I think that's ultimately how the game grows, you know. And I think if yeah. we can make give people good quality instruction and develop their fundamentals, I think they're more likely to stick with it if they start having some success with it too and actually improve while they're out there doing it.
1: We all know if you play better golf, you play more golf. That's just a fact. (laughs) So if we can get people to play more golf, better golf, we know that they're going to do more for our industry, right? And look, this is a business proposition too. This isn't because it's just the right thing to do. It's good for business. When you have people frequenting properties, you are, are, we have an $84 billion industry, the golf industry, right? And I think after COVID, it's probably even greater than that. And as a, let's say it's $85 billion industry. You know, people would say, well, gosh, isn't that enough? Well, no, because think of those that don't play, those that don't take lessons. I think, you know, 10% supposedly of those that play the game take lessons. What if we just moved that needle a little and made people play even better? And then what if those people brought their friend with them or their grandchild with them or a neighbor with them to play the game? What if an invitation went out? What if we finally got rid of the monikers in this game of, you know, gender? What if we got scorecards that just had, you know, Here's your five T's, pick where you want to play from. You know, what Mm -hmm. if we had an opportunity for women as they age to actually leave the T they grew up on, right? Women get one place to play from unless they move back, which is fine. I, I move back. Plenty of women do. But where do you go as you're aged as a woman? There's nowhere to move up, right? A male gets to move from the black to the blue to the white to the green to the gold to the red. Right. So they get five options and they play through their 80s. Where where are women supposed to go? And why do we lose the greatest majority of women in the game after 60 years old? It's not fun anymore. They can't get to the green and we don't give them an opportunity to do that. So there's just so many little nuances in our game that are, you know, changeable. That doesn't mean it doesn't come with a cost. It doesn't mean that you can plop two markers in the middle of the fairway and, and tell people go hit from there because people don't find that respectful. But if a facility chooses to and builds their golf courses or changes their golf courses or adds the opportunity to have a 4,200 to 4,600-yard tee box, if they make every hole on their golf course a par three, meaning add a tee to make every hole a par three and allow people to play quickly that are new golfers on the facility they already own and have, this game would explode. But we choose to continue to talk about it but leave it in its traditional state, and that's just not going to work.
0: No, well, you brought up some really good points. The point about losing female players as they get older because there's nowhere to go, t-wise. To be honest, that's something I had never really. Hell, I just never thought of it that way. You know? Yeah, I mean, you. Um, you it
1: sounds terrible, but you, you you're born on the forward key unless you move back and you die there, that's just like you know why 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 is that? Like, and why you know there's there's forward keys in all over the country that are at 5,800 mm-hmm. yards, right? 5,800 yards. Now you think about that. Okay. i mean not, that's my wheelhouse. I love that, right? <laughs> you know, I'd love to play uh, under 6,000 yards every time I play leadership. now, right? But, yep. you know, that's, it's too long for some men and most women who have a clubhead swing speed of 55 miles an hour. It doesn't work. So they right. never get to a par four in regulation, well, never harsh. Uh, rarely do they get to a par four in regulation, The par fives are just brutal. And, you know, they're happy, you know, a 36 handicap or higher because that's what they think that's all they can do. When, in fact, if they were playing from a yardage uh, specific to their swing speed, they would probably reach plenty of par fours in regulation on a good day, really enjoy themselves, not be exhausted when they finish because they didn't have to swing it 120 times, and would play faster. And, you know, it's just, it's not rocket science. It's pretty common sense. I realize there's an expense to it, but facilities have got to start catering to their population and offering an experience for their customer versus expecting people to come play because that's how it's always been.
0: No doubt. Last question for you. What's it like teaching and coaching your daughter through doing some of the same things you did now and played in North Carolina? Now an aspiring young professional playing on the, I believe it's Symmetra, correct, on the road to the LPGA. She does, uh, she does. Tell a little bit about what the experience is like. How is it different coaching and teaching your daughter?
1: Yeah, so Kelly, our youngest, both our daughters played college golf, but Kelly, our youngest, has taken it on professionally. Sure. And as you said, she's she's playing on the Symmetra Tour. She just competed yesterday, and I can tell you this as a parent and a coach, watching live goring is horrible. as you sit from somewhere other than with her because you have no control over it. You wouldn't have control over it if you're there either, but at least you were watching it. So, you know, just like every other parent, I'm a mom who, who desperately wants my daughter to be happy and succeed. And so it's, you know, when she doesn't play well, you know, you're there to support and cheer her on for the next. And when she does play well, you're there to say, great job, get back to work. So, you know, as a coach, I think as a parent coach, you know, Mike Thomas, I think, has done this spectacular job with, with JT because it's extremely difficult to separate. And, you know, I, I think my husband and I both decided when Kelly was in high school that we wanted to be her parents first. And so Kelly went to a boarding school called IJGA. She had an unbelievable coach, two coaches, Matt Fields and Alex Pachellas, who, who really we worked with by phone mostly as she was there, and they would tell us what she was working on. And we kept a pretty close hand on it, but we turned it over because we wanted to be TV mom and dad first. And we wanted her to be able to call and and just chat with us about normal everyday life and and not just golf. After she, when she went to college, obviously we became her coaches again. And she, you know, she worked a little with Todd Anderson uh, in college. It was closer to her than we were at the time. And with our responsibilities and my responsibilities at the PG of America, it was it was brutally hard to, to give her the, yeah. the eyes on she needed, and then that you know distance was a little became a little challenging. And, and right now, John Webster, who used to work for Jim McClain, is helping us with Kelly when she comes home, just to be that extra set of eyes so that yeah. Kelly can can candidly, and John is so great about this, can mouth off to him. <laughs>
0: right, right. And
1: and um and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in a no, good way. No, no, that's
0: doesn't. part of it.
1: He can tell her off, you know. He he can say, you know, what what the heck are you doing? Like, what what was that decision all about? And and it really makes it great because she's hearing what she's always heard from us, but it's coming from a third party. And John's been just unbelievably giving and generous of his time to her. We're so grateful for him and and thank him profusely for the energy he has put in to this year for her because it's been pressure packed. She didn't have great status, so she's only been in five events. She's desperately trying to not have to go to stage one tour school. She has to be at a certain number on the money list. She's got one more event to do that. And it's really pressure packed. And um, it's just been nice to be able to be your mom and, and talk through, you know, the good and the bad And when she calls. And then when she wants to talk through her swing, she obviously always has us to do that. But she has John, too. And John's the one yep. that can say, God, what's it? how are you doing on the greens today? You know, (laughs) as a a parent, I just had to listen and support. And so um, that's how we've managed it. It's not going to be the same for every parent that's a coach. But when we gave up some of the control, it's certainly been a really amazing journey to watch her grow as an adult, to watch her try to accomplish her dreams in a sport that's just so hard And requires so much resilience and grit. And, you know, either way, we're going to be there for her, whether she chooses to do this, you know, the rest of her life or whether she chooses not to. And she knows that and that makes it wonderful for us.
0: Susie, this was awesome. I know you got a crazy busy schedule, so thanks first for carving out time to sit and chat with me for all our listeners, and second, also I've just I've really enjoyed the opportunity to get to know you and to coach some with you, and look forward to doing more of it. And keep up all the great things and pushing golf forward.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to working with you this fall, and uh, we'll get some people better.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Tour Coach. I want to take a minute and thank Cordy Walker and Golf Science Lab, as well as my sponsors Shrikshawn, Buick, Bushnell, and Vineyard Vines for helping make all of this possible and helping me share my insights with you. If you like what you've heard, why don't you check out more on the Dew Sweepers channel on YouTube, as well as the Dew Sweeper on Instagram, or go to Dewsweepersgolf.com to find out more about my teaching, my travels, and where you can find out more about